This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 195. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. I'll also let you know what's going on with my life and my writing endeavors. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 53 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Callie, Will, and Lizzie are trying to escape Bayman Tower with District Attorney Wendell Schubert. Schubert is a family friend of Lizzie's and one of the few people on the police force whom they're sure they can trust to help them in the fight against the Brotherhood. After they told him about the cult's recent activities, he rallied a group of cops to shut down the Brotherhood's base of operations. Unfortunately, someone betrayed Schubert's trust, and now members of the Special Investigations Division are closing in from all sides. If Will and Schubert are captured, they won't live long enough to reveal what they've learned to anyone else. With the enemy cops closing off their avenues of escape, and Will suffering a bad reaction to Morgan's vampire blood, Callie took Will back into the maintenance section of the tower, with Lizzie and Schubert lagging behind them. There, Will's anxious fretting finally got the best of her, and Callie exploded at him in bitter, mocking anger. He had insisted on being a part of all this, and now that he's gotten hurt, he's acting like it's the end of the world. By falling apart now, Will is putting them all at risk. Both of them realized, in that moment, that Will wasn't cut out for this kind of work. He needs to go someplace safe. But Callie realized something else as well. It's over between them. For his own safety, she has to let Will go. Once Lizzie and Schubert rejoined them, Callie made an executive decision to split up the group. Four people together is too many and they're too easy to spot. She and Schubert will head downside, where they will try to reach Callie's swoop. Meanwhile, Lizzie and Will will head for the upper levels, where Lizzie has more connections and resources. Callie charges Lizzie with finding a safe place for Will to go to ground, where he can stay until the action blows over and it's time for him to testify about what he's seen. While Kelly distrusted Lizzie before, she's become convinced of the young detective's good faith and professionalism, and she is confident that Lizzie will take good care of Will. As they part ways, though, Callie is emotionally distant with Will, and he suddenly realizes that she is breaking up with him. Callie is gentle but firm. She's not the woman he thinks he needs, and she's never going to be. And while he has a right to tell her how he feels— There's no time to spare, and nothing he has to say is going to change anything. Shattered, Will asks her if she ever loved him. I do love you, Will, Callie says. That's why I have to go. 
and then, with a determination born from years of hardened practice, Callie turned away and walked out of Will Karenson's life. The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 53 Callie frowned as she studied the signage at yet another intersection in the tower's maintenance sector. She wished she had a phone that could view the building's schematics like Detective Moore. Failing that, she wished she had Kate's foolproof memory. Everything all right? Schubert asked. He sounded concerned but calm, a welcome difference from Will and his endless fretting. It's fine. Just thinking about the best way to do this. Schubert nodded once, accepting this without argument. His phone would probably have been able to view the plans, but the police would also be able to track it, so Schubert had done the smart thing and turned it off before they started this run. Callie hadn't even had to tell him to do it. He'd thought of it on his own. At least somebody's thinking clearly tonight. Normally, Callie would have chosen her path at random, trusting her supernatural luck to get her where she wanted to go but Callie's luck only worked in her favor. For her allies, its effects were less predictable. People who got close to Callie would have interesting lives, but things wouldn't necessarily turn out well for them. Like Will. The image of his sweet, gentle face rose up in her memory, his blue-gray eyes full of hurt and confusion at their last parting. With a stab of guilty anger, she pushed it away. Leaving was the only good turn you ever did him. You never should have let him fall in love with you. Callie's vision had gotten blurry. She wiped at her eyes in irritation and took a deep breath. Okay, we're going this way. She pointed at a passage to their left and started walking. Maybe it would be right and maybe it wouldn't, but she had to start moving again. If she thought any more about Will, she wasn't going to be of use to anyone. Schubert followed her, saying nothing. The big man seemed comfortable with silence, in a way few topsiders were. They passed out of the maintenance sector, down a narrow hallway with a few supply closets and an access panel for the HVAC system, and came to a stop near a set of public restrooms. A few meters beyond that, the hallway ended at a broad commercial avenue. Callie could hear a distant, muffled cacophony of bells, chimes, and canned electronic music, all coming from behind a long, empty expanse of wall on the far side of the avenue. She poked her head out around the corner and looked both ways. A single, unmarked door stood in the middle of that wall, about fifty meters to her left. Two guards stood in front of the door, but they weren't looking in Callie's direction and didn't seem to have noticed her. There were no other storefronts. She drew back into the side passage and turned to Schubert. The D.A. frowned, clearly puzzled. That sounds like a casino. Yep. Where are we? There's no casino in Bayman Tower. Not officially, no. 
After a moment, Schubert's confusion gave way to quiet anger. The vampires? Callie just nodded. The man's hands clenched into fists. Right under my nose. Oh, Malcolm must have enjoyed that. Yeah, probably. Look, I know how Eutheriomorphs feel about turning human, but we're probably going to have a lot better chance of getting out of here if nobody can recognize you. She gestured at one of the restrooms. Schubert caught on quickly. You think you can use the Syndicate's guards to run interference with the police outside? Something like that, yeah. Do you trust me? Schubert seemed to consider the question. It doesn't look like I have much of a choice at the moment. He nodded once, apparently to himself. I'll be right back. While the DA used the restroom, Callie got a drink of water from the nearby fountain and sized up the security cameras. There were two on the ceiling that had line of sight on the restrooms. Callie probably could have fried them by extending her luck powers in their direction, but an overt malfunction would have drawn unwanted attention. She called Evan again and had the techies loop the video feed. Evan, of course, knew immediately what Callie was up to. Hasn't the syndicate banned you from their casinos yet? I can go in, I just can't play, Callie said. You know the vamps. If you're going to make a deal with them, they want to talk on their turf. True. All the same, do be careful. With so many blues about, I imagine the hired help is a bit skittish. He paused a moment, then added, The feed is looped. You're in the clear. Thanks. Fair it out. Schubert came out of the restroom a moment later. As she had expected, he was tall, pale-skinned, and blonde, with a close, thick beard that reminded Callie of the whiskers on his otter form. She nodded once in approval, then led the way to the casino entrance. It was only a side door, not the main entrance to the casino. The vamps had probably left it in place solely to give the patrons access to the restrooms. The two guards were each openly carrying two large pistols and a stun gun. One was human. The other was a dog morph of some light-colored breed that Callie didn't recognize. They glowered suspiciously at Callie and Schubert. Where do you two come from? the human guard asked. Callie showed him the badge that identified her as a member of the Runner's Guild. Came in the back way. Don't know if you heard, but it's pretty hot outside right now. The man snorted. Yeah, we heard. You see all the reporters at the front door? Some nut job ran a live feed of his own arrest. Callie and Schubert exchanged a look. Pirelli? Arrest for what? Callie asked. Don't know, don't care, the guard said. He gestured with his chin at Schubert. Who's he? Bodyguard, Callie said. Schubert crossed his arms and flexed his biceps, making them bulge visibly beneath his skin. The guard just grunted and beckoned them to step forward. One at a time, the dogman sniffed them up and down, probably checking for drugs or explosives. Not that Malcolm had anything against drugs at his casinos, but he didn't want anyone competing with his dealers. The guards took account of Callie's knives and pistol, but as she had expected, they didn't seem troubled by either. Eventually, they let Callie and Schubert through. The casino's interior was brightly lit, and security cameras dotted the walls and ceiling. 
there was nowhere to hide, and Callie was quite sure that these cameras were not connected to the tower security system that Brian had so easily co-opted. Long rows of slot machines were interspersed with roulette wheels, blackjack tables, and other assorted games of chance. Attractive men and women in skimpy outfits flitted here and there, carrying trays of drinks and appetizers. The clientele was a diverse mixture of street rats, high-rolling men in expensive suits, and plenty of people in between. Callie led Schubert over to one of the customer service desks, where an attentive woman in a tailored suit and a red scarf stood patiently at attention. She turned her head to look at them as they approached, smiling blandly. "'Can I help you, ma'am?' the assistant asked. "'I gotta talk to Franklin,' Callie said. The assistant's smile did not change, but a hint of suspicion crept in behind her eyes. "'I'm sorry, but Mr. Franklin is not available right now. Is there something I can help you with?' "'Tell him it's Callie Linder. I got a business opportunity for him, and it's a limited-time offer.' She narrowed her eyes at the woman. "'Send the message.' Unconsciously, the woman took a step back, but still her expression did not change. I'll let him know, ma'am. It may be some time before he can reply. In the meantime, may I offer you each a drink ticket and a twenty-mark chip, compliments of the house? Callie suppressed her irritation and nodded. Fine. The assistant passed her two orange drink tickets and a pair of blue and gold striped chips. Callie swept them up with one hand and stalked away toward the bar, Schubert following on her heels. She half-turned in mid-stride and flicked the chips at him. He caught them without flinching. She doesn't know me, Callie told him. If she did, she'd never have given me those. Hold on to them. Schubert looked at the chips for a moment before slipping them inside his pocket. Who is Franklin? He's a blood slave, but an important one. He manages this place for Mr. Roche, the vamp who owns it. If we want to deal with the Reds, Frank's our way in. The DA's eyes brightened in understanding. What are you going to offer them? The one thing that matters to them more than blood or money, Callie said. Then she went up to the bar and ordered a drink. Time crept by at a snail's pace. Callie nursed her drink and kept a careful eye on the door to the back, but Franklin did not show himself, and nobody came to fetch her. She made repeated, anxious glances at the clock. Schubert sat patiently beside her, studying the room like he was making mental notes for a deposition later. When her drink was empty, Callie set the glass down on the bar a bit harder than was necessary. She stalked back over to the customer service woman. Hey, you hear anything from Frank yet? The woman smiled her bland, empty smile again. I'm very sorry, ma'am, but Mr. Franklin has not replied to your message yet. Callie narrowed her eyes at the woman in suspicion. You sure he got it? The clock's ticking on this deal, you know. The message was sent, the woman said, in the same unflappable tone of voice. Callie started to wonder if the woman was some kind of construct, a golem or a robot or something. I'm afraid I don't have any information on whether he has seen it yet. There are many demands on his attention, as I'm sure you know. Callie just gritted her teeth and stalked back to the bar.
She locked eyes with Schubert and jerked her head in a follow-me gesture. He did so. What do we do now? Schubert asked. Get out your chips, Callie growled. She led him over to a roulette wheel near the center of the room, with blackjack tables to one side and a long bank of slot machines on the other. Security cameras watched the spot from at least six different angles. She gestured toward the croupier and whispered in Schubert's ear, Put him on zero. Schubert raised an eyebrow at her. Zero? Are you sure? Trust me. The DA gave a slight shrug, then went to the croupier to get his chips changed and place his bet. Meanwhile, Callie closed her eyes and focused on her aura. Callie's extraordinary luck was a mark of her supernatural heritage. Her misbegotten and absent father had been half-celestial, half-fiend, and he had passed on to Callie his connection to the primal forces of chaos. That power ran through Callie's entire body, and, by extension, through her arcane aura. Callie had learned how to close down her aura, to hold it tightly to her body, to prevent mages and telepaths from picking up her stray thoughts or noticing her unusual abilities. Now, as Schubert placed his chips on the green zero box, Callie did the exact opposite. She opened her aura as far as it could go. The croupier spun the wheel in one direction, then launched the ball the opposite way. Callie opened her eyes to watch, still keeping her aura wide open. The ball rolled smoothly around the wheel once, twice, then fell into the numbered pockets and began to bounce and skitter between them. No more bets, the croupier called. The ball bounced again, again, then came to a stop right on the green zero. There was a chorus of shouts and moans of dismay as most of the other gamblers saw their chips swept away by the croupier's rake. A small pile of chips got pushed in front of Schubert. He looked up at Callie, questioningly. Callie felt a tight smile appear on her face. She spun her index finger in a circular motion. Let it ride. Schubert pushed his pile of chips back to the green zero. The croupier eyed him suspiciously, then shrugged and spun the wheel. It landed on zero again. More shouting and bitching from the other gamblers. A much bigger pile of chips appeared in front of Schubert. Callie gave him the hand signal again. This time, when Schubert pushed his chips onto the green zero... Every other gambler at the table followed suit. The croupier, now sweating visibly, spun the wheel in the opposite direction, and then released the ball with a clearly half-hearted throw. It didn't even make it halfway around the wheel before it dropped into the pockets. It landed on zero again. The earlier protests were now replaced with cries of jubilation, People began jumping up and down, screaming and hugging each other. The croupier looked at the roulette wheel like it had just pulled out a knife and stabbed him. The woman from the customer service counter came rushing over. Her blandly cheerful expression was starting to look strained. I'm very sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but this wheel is now closed for maintenance. Please enjoy the rest of the casino. 
some of the gamblers started protesting, angrily demanding their winnings. People at the surrounding tables and machines stopped to watch, some curious, others concerned. The customer service lady kept trying to placate everyone, to assure them that all legitimate winnings would be paid, that this roulette wheel was clearly malfunctioning, and any stakes lost due to the malfunction would be restored. Callie lost sight of Schubert as the crowd of gamblers swallowed him. She stayed back from it all, smiling for the cameras, keeping her aura wide open. Behind her, four different blackjack players hit 21 at the same time. On the far side of the wheel, half a dozen slot machines hit jackpot in the space of ten seconds. Pandemonium ensued. Standing amidst a sea of shouting patrons, some jubilant, some outraged, Callie suspected that few of them had noticed the tall, quiet security guards moving among them. Callie, of course, had expected them, and was neither surprised nor frightened when two of the burly men appeared behind her. Miss Linder, one of the guards said, with no trace of expression in either his face or his voice, Mr. Franklin will see you now. About fucking time, Callie said, and let them escort her into the back. They took her to a small, dimly lit room next to the casino's administrative office. Schubert was already inside, seated in a metal chair, his hands resting on a cheap folding table. Two more syndicate goons loomed behind him, but they hadn't roughed him up yet, as far as Callie could tell. Schubert's winnings, of course, were nowhere to be seen. The guards brought Callie another chair and made her sit next to Schubert. Soon thereafter, a small, harried-looking man came in and sat down across from them. He had a thin fringe of graying black hair on his otherwise bald head, and a pair of circular, wire-rimmed glasses perched on his beak of a nose. He cast a long look between Callie and Schubert, then sighed. Miss Linder, he said tiredly, I thought we had an understanding. Callie shrugged one shoulder. Sure, Franklin. You said I couldn't gamble here. You never said anything about my hired help. A nod in Schubert's direction. If I had known you were subcontracting now, rest assured I would have mentioned it, Franklin said. His voice had taken on an irritated edge. Not to mention the effect on our other patrons. I should throw you both out of here for the disruption alone. You could do that, Callie agreed. Or you could listen to my offer first. What offer? Franklin didn't sound enthused. Revenge. Callie said. Last Friday, your master lost Madame Petra and a van full of new recruits. I know who hit him, and I know where to hit back. Franklin's lips compressed into a thin line. And what do you want in exchange for this information? The same thing you want, Callie said, leaning forward to look Franklin in the eye. These fuckers broke the code. They took Silas. They need to pay. Franklin's eyebrows shot upward. Someone took Silas Kenning? Callie just nodded once. Well, then, that is interesting. 
He looked between Callie and Schubert for a long moment. Callie stared back, showing him nothing but her own tightly controlled anger. A ghost of a smile appeared on the little man's face. All right, Miss Linder. Let's talk. And that's the end of Chapter 53. Come back next time, when Lizzie tries to get Will to safety, and Will finally learns what Morgan did to him. Anne Carson said, Words bounce. Words, if you let them, will do what they want to do and what they have to do. So bounce along with me, and let's see where my words have landed. Here's the weekly writing report. In the last two weeks, I wrote 9,985 words in 12 hours, for an average writing speed of 832 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 294 days without breaking my chain. Last week, I finished my portal fantasy, The Dark Lord Steve. The final word count came to 19,860 words. This story was a really interesting experience for me. I started out intending to write it as a comedic farce, but it twisted in my hands as I wrote it. It ended up feeling more like one of those Robin Williams movies from the 80s and 90s. There's definitely some humor, some absurdism, some zany moments, but then it turns around and grabs you by the heartstrings, and turns into something poignant and bittersweet. I wasn't expecting that at all, but I like it. I have the story out with a beta reader now, so we'll see if it works for anyone besides me, but I had a lot of fun on this piece. I hope readers will, too. In total, I worked on the Dark Lord Steve for 25.25 hours in 26 days, averaging 765 words per day. It took me 41 calendar days from start to finish, and it's the third story I've completed this year, after Homecoming and the Nearness of You. After finishing The Dark Lord Steve, I went back to working on my Kevin and Abby story, All the World of Fire. This is a big change in tone from The Dark Lord Steve, and I'm struggling a bit with the writing as a result. Kevin is calm, gentle, soft-spoken, and contemplative, and it's really important to make sure that doesn't translate into boring. He's also spending a lot of time playing off his teenage foster daughter, Ember, who is his opposite in many ways, but admires him, at the same time she's often angry and impatient about the things he wants her to do. It's a complicated emotional balancing act, and even though the whole story is written from Kevin's perspective, I find myself frequently pausing as I write, stepping outside the narrative to imagine what Ember thinks about things, most of which she's not going to talk about, because she's a teenager and talking about feelings is hard. The whole thing is taking a lot of mental energy, and my writing is going a bit more slowly as a result. The story is now in Chapter 7, and the manuscript is up to about 17,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. 
Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.